Welcome to the Urgent Matters podcast. This is a series where leading experts from around the world share with us their latest insights into overactive bladder. I'm your host, Professor Paul Abrams, and I'm delighted that you have joined us for this latest instalment. This is the last episode in our series of 10 podcasts and deals with overactive bladder within lifelong care and geriatrics. Joining us today is Professor Adrian Wagg, who is Professor of Medicine at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Canada. Now, he's a geriatrician with a long-standing interest in lower urinary tract dysfunction in the elderly and overactive bladder in particular. He was the first physician to be elected General Secretary of the International Continent Society, so we're very grateful that he is joining us. He's going to talk about the complexity of OAB, which increases as the patient becomes older for a large number of factors ensuing frailty, cognitive impairment and comorbidities become important. He will also talk about the pathophysiology of OAB in older people. So Adrian, can I ask you what considerations you have when deciding about management in elderly patients and in particular about OAB pharmacological treatment? I think it's important when you consider older people is that about 50% of them um, age successfully. And we define that as aging without significant comorbidity or impairment of physical or cognitive function. That leaves us with 50% who don't. Uh, And they might be described as physically, uh, medically complex uh, or even frail. Um, The proportion of older adults with frailty uh, increases rapidly in the ninth decade. Uh, And and as the audience will know, frailty is a syndrome of vulnerability to insult with a reduced probability of full recovery, um, which itself predicts poor health outcomes or early mortality. So we know that lower urinary tract dysfunction is common in later life, uh, and this parallels the impairment in physical and cognitive function. So urinary incontinence and particularly overactive bladder requires a multi-component management plan in the elderly. And this needs to incorporate considerations of these additional impairments to allow older people to successfully toilet and to avoid having their symptoms having an impact on daily life. And when you ask them, that's what the majority of older people want. So when you manage overactive bladder and incontinence, you need to take account of the impact of comorbid conditions, which will impair the likelihood of successful toileting. Mobility, for example, would be one major factor which needs to be optimised to allow older people to get to the toilet in time. And also, uh, you need to take into account the fact that older people with urinary urgency become deconditioned and are less likely to be physically active or physically mobile. Likewise, a medication review where you can either amend or stop unnecessary medications, which again has an impact on lower urinary tract function and the probability of successful toileting, should be recommended. Examples would include short-acting loop diuretics, which are taken at a time inconvenient to the patient, medications which cause fluid retention or constipation, and those which sedate as well as those with side effects that might impair lower urinary tract function. An example would be the cholinesterase inhibitors for dementia, which make urinary urgency worse. Thank you. I think that you've emphasised the complexity and the need for a much more 
systematic assessment of elderly patients, particularly with the comorbidities and their often polypharmacy, which, as I know you're going to go on to talk about, is very important. Can you talk a bit more about cardiovascular issues, both in terms of stroke, obvious stroke, and perhaps also in terms of other neurovascular considerations that you think about when you see an elderly person with overactive bladder? Overactive bladder, and particularly urgency, is a really interesting phenomenon in later life. Older adults with OAB have more associated comorbidities than older people without overactive bladder, and this has been shown in both community-dwelling older adults and residents of nursing homes. Although some of those comorbidities are exactly like you suggested in terms of cardiovascular or cerebrovascular disease, many are unrelated uh, to the presumed etiology of urgency or overactive bladder. Now, the, the cardiovascular comorbidities is clearly linking with OAB etiology in terms of ischemia, fibrosis, and maybe central nervous system involvement with white matter hyperintensities that predominate in the frontal lobes, impairing the brain's ability to suppress the sensation of urinary urgency. But there are epidemiological data looking at diet and lifestyle risk which suggests that paying attention to cardiovascular risk and therefore cerebrovascular risk in midlife may well reduce the incidence of OAB in later life. We've got some intervention data in older people from uh, exercise-related trials, which show improvement in nocturia associated with an increase in exercise capacity and a reduction in cardiovascular risk, along with a reduction in body mass index. The women involved in the trial all lost weight. There are plentiful data that show that the waist-hip ratio, more than body mass index alone, is associated with OAB and urgency incontinence. So I think that if you're dealing people with high cardiovascular risk and therefore cerebrovascular risk, they may well be at enhanced risk of developing OAB. It's a very interesting point that you raise about looking after ourselves through middle life. And one that I think is difficult Nevertheless, uh, a mile a day keeps the doctor away might be a useful saying, emphasising to all of us that throughout our lives, we need to exercise regularly, eat well, keep our weight down. And in terms of OAB, there's pretty good evidence that the fitter and slimmer we are, the less likely we are to get overactive bladder. What about the metabolic syndrome in terms of it being part of obesity and the difference between men and women? What do you feel about that with respect to overactive bladder? Well, I don't actually think that's true. There are multiple epidemiological studies with samples of various sizes which show that both men and women have been identified uh, as having a link between OAB and metabolic syndrome and central obesity. And as much as incontinence uh, is also associated with a poor diet in terms of a um, uh, high red meat, high carbohydrate uh, diet, low levels of physical exercise, obesity and diabetes. 
So we know that over two years, such factors can result in a doubling of the risk of developing OAB. And I suspect that this is likely to be the result of micro ischemia and fibrosis within the bladder and ischemia within the brain, again, impairing its ability to suppress urgency and contributing to the development of urgency incontinence. And intriguingly, in older people, uh, this white matter hyperintensities link both with um, gait impairment, cognitive impairment and urgency incontinence? Well, certainly the neuropathology is fascinating and perhaps that's where we might get some true breakthroughs in the management of overactive bladder. You've talked about anticholinergic drugs. Will you talk a bit about the anticholinergic burden and what it means for elderly patients who have OAB? So anticholinergic drugs are prescribed for a wide range of conditions, including allergies, sleep disorders, nausea and vomiting, depression, psychosis, amongst other things. About one third to one half of the medicines commonly prescribed for older people have anticholinergic activity. Side effects for anticholinergics are, as we know in OAB, are relatively common, especially for older people, and can lead to discontinuation of their use. The side effects, although CNS side effects are relatively rare, they can represent a significant burden on patients and healthcare providers alike. So due to the risks associated with anticholinergic use, the cumulative anticholinergic drug exposure is referred to as anticholinergic burden. Uh, the anticholinergic burden has been associated with, uh, for example, a greater risk of an incident dementia diagnosis over time. Many national and international guidelines, therefore, have counselled about using uh, caution when uh, prescribing an antimuscaric in those at risk of cognitive impairment. Well, thank you. I find overactive bladder in terms of the anticholinergic burden a bit difficult because as surgeons, we don't really know the pharmacology in the way that you do as a physician. And how do you think in the future we can look at anticholinergic burden anticholinergic load in a methodical and meaningful way. I hope there'll be more research on this and perhaps some algorithms which even simple surgeons can follow. But having said that, what other things can be done to improve the management of elderly patients with overactive bladder and what new approaches look promising? Um, well, there's still lots to do in the treatment of overactive bladder and urgency incontinence in older people. Um, the first, of course, is to overcome the natural embarrassment and reticence that many people have in seeking care. There remains a normalisation of incontinence in the elderly, with many people thinking that it's quite normal to be incontinent just because you're old. In the general population, there's a continued lack of awareness of what can be done to help from the side of clinicians uh, and uh, the people themselves. And there's likewise a failure to recognise that OAB and urgency incontinence are important enough to treat, especially when coupled with inherent ageism and therapeutic nihilism. Remember that many medically complex, vulnerable or frail old adults don't even get in front of a clinician to discuss this problem. So as far as treatments go, relative application of pharmacological therapy is clearly important, and there needs to be ongoing research for alternative mechanisms of action. As we know, the first clinically available beta-3 agonist was launched in 2012 and Mara Begron's in a different class, uh, allowing us an alternative anti to anti-muscarinics. 
The results from a network meta-analysis from 21 randomized controlled trials in adults over 65 suggested a favorable safety profile for myrobegron, which is maintained in older adults with OAB compared to antimuscarinics. Myrobegron appears to be similarly efficacious to antimuscarinics when used in this population. And of course, you don't get uh, as much of the adverse events typically associated with anticholinergics. The utility of peripheral nerve stimulation, either by intermittent attendance at outpatient programs or the use of smaller implantable devices, uh, may well uh, have considerable value. It remains to be seen what use they become in older people. The main message here, however, is to be proactive in detecting the problem and exploring the nature of its impact, actively treating overactive bladder and urgency incontinence, and taking into account the other factors which might render successful toileting more difficult. Well, thank you. And I think you've made some very interesting points about managing older people. And I think your emphasis on holistic care uh, is clearly very important. Dealing with the psychological issues like treatment nihilism, the patient saying, well, you know, I'm old now, what can I expect? Or their embarrassment, which stops them coming and talking to us about their symptoms. Dealing with those issues is very important. And I suppose education will be at the root of solving that. Also, your point about looking after ourselves in the middle years and reducing our risks particularly reducing our cardiovascular risk, getting our blood pressure checked regularly, going to well-man and well-women clinics, because we know that treating blood pressure, which is raised immediately, saves a lot of morbidity. So thanks again, Professor Wag, for joining us, and thanks to Estellas. Uh, thank you very much for uh, uh, having me along, and uh, it's ple- I'm pleased to know that people are interested in OAB and older adults. I should like to end this podcast and indeed the series of podcasts by saying that I've been delighted to host the podcast and of course I've learned a lot and I hope you have too. But most important, I hope that you have found the issues discussed in the podcast of great value in your professional life and most importantly in your management of your patients. Mm-hmm.